Hello, and welcome to Square in the Circle. On this episode, I'm joined by Lieutenant General Richard P. Formica, U.S. Army retired, who is currently the Vice President of Strategic Initiatives for Caliber Systems. He is responsible for leading Caliber strategic planning and positioning. Among his responsibilities, he serves as a senior mentor at the Army Force Management School, providing experience and expertise to several courses in the schoolhouse. He is a career field artillery officer and serves as the Director of Force Management in HKDA for three and a half years, from 2005 to 2008. His final assignment was Commanding General of the Army Space Missile Defense Command. He retired from the U.S. Army in 2013 with 36 years of service. The views, thoughts, and opinions expressed in this program are of my own and my guests. They do not reflect the positions of the U.S. Government, the Department of Defense, the U.S. Army, or any other organization. This content is for education and information purposes only. Well, hey, good morning, sir. You know, thanks for being on the podcast. I really look forward to our discussion on, on your experiences as, you know, a previous DFM, Director of Force Management, and, and get your thoughts on some contemporary issues uh, a lot of us as, as force managers have or or may work in the in the G3 up at the building under the DFM. Um, you know, and one of our core competencies is, is force structure and, and TAA and, and uh command plans, ERVB, and the DFM is, you know, has a pivotal role in, in leading that. Um, and lastly, sir, before I, I, I turn it over to you, sir, um, you know, you serve as a senior mentor at the Army Force Management School at the schoolhouse. Uh, you're involved in, you know, multiple of the courses that are offered at the school. But one of my, you know, pivotal memories of the schoolhouse, um, you know, a few days before graduating from the FA-50Q course, uh, you know, you gave us some of your time and talked to us about expectations of being a force manager, um, you know, how we're crucial to force and gave us an opportunity to ask some, you know, thought-provoking questions. And so this episode will, you know, have some similarities to that, to that visit and that discussion. Uh, so before we begin, sir, dive into the questions, I will uh, turn it over to you for any opening comments. Well, I'll just say good morning to, and good afternoon, everyone. Uh, it's good to be on. And Matt, thanks for hosting us. Thanks for the effort you put into creating this podcast and expanding the uh, knowledge base of force managers and getting into topics of interest to them uh, today. And I think having a historical perspective um, every now and then probably is helpful. So I um, appreciate the opportunity to to speak with you today and to... Uh, and to answer your questions, uh, nice. go ahead. I was just yep. going to say, I, I want to just to frame this. My my time as the force manager, director of force management, really, uh, I started as a lieutenant colonel back in 1997 in an office that preceded what is today director of force management. So I kind of got my feet wet, learned a little bit about what that process was, was on the programs team. So came out of a TAA in my role, I was just out of the war college and on my way to the Vardy command. So I really saw the benefit and the importance of the strategy documents as to how they informed TAA. And so I didn't get into the mechanics of force management so much as I tried to make that connection. And I got to tell you, as I continued to evolve in my force management time, and even as I came back as the director of force management, which was during the time 2005 to 2008, I was shaped by that early experience, and it never left me the significance of the strategy documents and their impact on the Army's force management process. And I'll come back to that probably repeatedly until you're tired of hearing it some during this podcast. Yeah, yes, sir. Uh, you know, one of the things I got 
enmeshed in my brain leaving the schoolhouse was that it always, you know, it starts with the strategy. So, um, so, sir, I was wondering your time as the, as the DFM, if you could kind of talk us through, you know, the roles and responsibilities of the DFM and what were some of the, you know, your, your challenges and, and what would you do, you know, differently if you could go back? Okay. So, um, you know, we started off, I talked about the importance of the strategy. You said it all starts with the strategy. Now you ask me about my role. Let me frame this again by using the Army Force Management model, which, again, I'll refer to probably frequently during this interview. But the Army Force Management model tells us all of the different activities in the Army that are involved in those things that cause us to develop, prepare, and then deploy or generate uh, the Army Force. And if you think about the Army Force Management model, it starts with the strategy, and you have to answer the question, what do you want the Army to do? Then you get down into capability development, and it's what capabilities does the Army need to have? Then you go as you go through that capability force development process, how do we bring those capabilities into the force? What are the processes that enable that? So... You talked about total army analysis, the POM process, the JSITS process. All those processes come together to help bring these capabilities into the force. Then you've got to be able to ask, especially up at headquarters DA where we do resourcing, um, can we afford to organize, man, equip, train, sustain, station, and fund that force that we just developed? And then you deploy, generate and deploy that force ultimately to meet combatant commander's requirements. So that's the force management model. And you ask, what's the role of the director of force management? The director of force management is an army staff officer, usually in the grade of brigadier general or major general, assisted now by a, uh, uh, I think a tier one or a tier two SES deputy, has a sergeant major. Um, so there's some leadership there in the, DFM headquarters, so to speak, uh, to help. And I'll come back to that when you ask me about, you know, challenges. But uh, serving as that staff officer in the G3 really becomes the pivot point for how are you going to develop the force? And I try to use the, the analogy or the metaphor. If you think about a bicycle wheel, right? Organized is at the hub of that wheel. And organized belongs in headquarters DA G357. And then coming from that hub are spokes, man, equip, train, sustain, station, fund, de uh, deploy. And there are lead elements, whether they're on the Army staff or out in the Army commands, ASCCs or DRUs, all of whom have an impact on those spokes. But it's the role of the DFM uh, under the auspices of the Army G357 to serve as that hub to bring all of those together and essentially links the force management model to resourcing and the POM process. Um, and the ultimate deliverable for any director of force management is a series of uh, total Army analysis where you develop the program force the force structure that's going to be required to be considered in the next POM. And all of the other uh, resourcing agencies, you know, 
um, <clears throat> excuse me, man, equip, train, sustain, station, fund, um, all of the pegs and all of the budget items are built on the program force that comes from that TAA. And so that's ultimately a DFM's deliverable. Yes, sir. Um, what were some of the challenges when you were in the seat? Yeah, so um, I, I mentioned that I was there 2005 to 2008. So if you hearken back to that time, <clears throat> we were uh, fighting two wars in Iraq and Afghanistan. We were therefore implementing the Army Force Generation Model, which was a new way to look at how to generate and deploy forces to the combatant commanders. Um, and it was a different model than we used in the past. Uh, we were implementing modularity. We were transitioning the Army from a division-based force to a brigade combat team-based force. And, and I would add, we actually had a responsibility to look at the whole army as a result of that. What are the implications of that transition to modularity? And so we looked at the institutional army, we looked at uh, army commands, ASCCs, army service component commands, the direct reporting units, and then the operating force structure from core and division down to the uh, smallest company and platoon size unit. So we were implementing modularity at the same time and then about a year into my term, <clears throat> we uh, added grow the army to our mix, right? So if we didn't have enough to do fighting two wars, implementing ARPAGEN and transitioning to modularity. Now we were going to get bigger at the same time. And we had to make the kinds of decisions that were required to not only change that force, but to grow it and grow the right capabilities proportioned to what we needed. Um, our focus was on the BCT capacity, um, anybody who was in the Army at that time, especially those that were in the operating force or in that part of the institutional Army, the generating force that was required to develop and generate forces to meet combatant commanders' requirements, know that we couldn't keep up with demand. We couldn't build BCT capacity fast enough to get us on the Army force generation model that we wanted. We wanted to be able to deploy a BCT, deploy for one period of time, and come back for no less than two, maybe three, before you had to deploy again, if you were in a regular army, deploy for one, and we'll, I'll refer to that as one colon two or one colon three. And for the Army National Guard and the Army Reserve, we wanted them to be able to deploy for a time period and then come back for not less than four, optimally five equivalent time period. So that would be one colon four, one colon five. We never got anywhere near that for most units in all three compos. We were struggling to get to one colon one, which means you were out, back, and then out again in the regular army. And many of the guard and reserve units were at one colon two or one colon three. Some of them, even high demand items, were one colon one. So that was a challenge for sure. Uh, building BCT capacity and keeping up with the demands of theater, while at the same time making this holistic look from Army commands all the way down to the smallest tactical unit and trying to get modularity about right. There were a series of challenges associated with all that and bringing the force together, trying to ensure that we had the resources at the right time. Um, force integration was a challenge. Uh, force integration 
There's the process of ensuring you've made a decision and what kind of force you want to have. And then you got to make sure you have the people, the equipment, the training time available to create that unit and get it ready. It's one thing to create it. It's another to have time to make it ready. And the timing of all that, the force integration challenge was pretty acute during that time frame. Yes, sir. Yeah, just a, a quick follow up. Um, you know, I just came back from a GFM conference and the, and the Air Force was talking about Arfogen. And I'm not sure if we got it from them or if they got it from us. Um, you know, it sparked my, my intellectual curiosity and I really wanted to get a little bit into the weeds on on that but they were brief in some of the challenges that they were that they were having and so sir i was just wondering what were your thoughts on arfogen yeah so our here's where arfogen was a little bit different the notion of army force generation model as it was envisioned um and it really came from forcecom and was embraced by uh, general casey who was the chief staff of the army at the time uh, the arfogen model essentially said again i'll go back to the to the uh, force management model. It all starts with the strategy. What do you want the army to do? What capabilities does it need to have? How do we build those capabilities into the force? Can you afford to organize, man, equip, train, sustain, station, and fund it? And so we had a program force. We had an army. And the army force generation model said to the national security apparatus, this is the army that you have. If we're going to deploy it on a regular basis for an enduring amount of time, <clears throat> excuse me, and we want to stay to unit rotations and get away from the individual manning that we did in Vietnam, uh, that we wanted to be able to generate whole and ready units, deploy them, and bring them back. It was a supply-based model. This is what you have. This is what you can get. And it presumed that when the Army said to the national security apparatus, this is what you can get, then there was a limit to what they would ask for and what we would agree to provide. The tension became the demand for Army forces never restrained itself to the supply coming out of R4Gen. <clears throat> and so if the supply was based on one colon two or one colon three in the regular army, one colon four and one colon five in the guard and reserve, we knew exactly how many of what types of units we could generate on that rotational basis. But when the demand exceeded what we could generate, the Arfogen model had to spin faster. And so regular army units were turning at one colon one, so you could generate more units to try to keep up but the impact was on the uh, ability of the army to, to develop ready units and to, and to maintain a purse tempo that soldiers uh, could sustain. Same thing at one colon four, one colon five, one to one colon two or three for some uh, guard and reserve units. So the force generation model was actually the strength of the model that it was capable of spinning faster, but the intent was spin faster for a short period of time while we were coincidentally building capacity. And as you built capacity and fed those units into the model, then the rotation could slow down. For several years, we were not able to slow down that rotation because we couldn't build the BCTs and the enablers that come with it fast enough. And so the Arfogen model had to continue to spin.
So to, so to meet the, the customer, sir, the, you know, the um, command commands, um, and we couldn't be uh, build uh, the BCTs fast enough. Is that because of resourcing, because of manning, the, the equipment? Um, you know, what, what did that look like, sir? Yeah, so it's, it's interesting. And I'll, and I'll just I'll tell a little bit of an anecdote to, to try to highlight the point. It was all of that. Um, it was manning. It was time. Excuse me. It was manning. It was equipment. It was time, which uh, affected training time in particular. But as we were getting ready to deploy and we were implementing these, you know, we used to have a, a secure VTC or a civets every Saturday morning um, where the headquarters DA and all of the ASCCs, um, the Army commands um, and the DRUs came together because we were at war and we were on a war footing and that DRU, I mean, excuse me, that the civets pulled everybody together and got the collective army headquarters and staffs working together in in sync um, to meet the requirements of the war. That Saturday civets was pivotal and um, we were at the heart of it because we were trying to build the capability and capacity. Uh, but the guys that were under the gun every Saturday were the G1 and the G8 because it was really about can you man and equip the force? And um, the, the pressure on us was, do you back off activation dates to give more time for manning and equipping to catch up? Or do you keep the manning dates when you think you need it to drive the process to force the system to try to pull manning and resource and equipping forward? So there was always that healthy tension. And I had to have a very... Uh, good, all of us, not just me, but the colonels and the lieutenant colonels, the action officers, the force managers deep inside DFM in all three compos at, at headquarters DA, at the readiness center for the guard, and at OCAR had to have a, a good working relationship, not only with each other, but with our respective uh, manning and equipping um, staffs to make sure that we were trying to meet that. And the intent when we first got to r and I may get the numbers a little bit wrong because it was a few years ago, but the intent when we had r was you would establish an E-date for a unit <clears throat> and, and it would be P1, uh, E1, no, not E1, what is it? P1, S1, P1, S1, have all of its people and all of its equipment 180 days before it was going to deploy so it would have time to train. And during this time when I told you that the R4Gen model was spinning faster and faster, that 180 days went to 120, to 90, to 30. Well, we're going to be P1, S1 by the time you deploy. Well, then we got to, well, you're going to be P1, S1 by the time you hit Kuwait. I knew we were really struggling when I got to, you're going to be P1, S1 by the time you cross the berm to go into Iraq. We just couldn't generate the resources fast enough to get the units put together and give them the collective training time they needed to be able to deploy. Now, as time was, same, same time was going on, we had a lot more experienced units, experienced commanders, experienced soldiers 
Many of them were on their second or third rotation. So arguably, they didn't need as much training time as they might as they might have at the beginning because they brought that experience with them. But it was never the intent to develop, develop or deliver a ready unit in Kuwait. We wanted to do that here before they deployed. So that was the tension. And it was, as I said, the G1 and the G8 that were under the gun constantly. It was interesting. Several years later, I came back to the building for a period of time after having served as the uh, commander of C-Sticka in Afghanistan. So I came back in 2000, late 2009, and I went to a Saturday civets. And under the gun, that civets was the G4 of the Army because the, the system had caught up. We had sufficient manning. We had sufficient equipment on hand. Now it was a question of our ability to sustain and maintain that equipment that we had. So we were priming the pump, getting manning and equipping going. It took a while to go, but at a certain period, after a few years, manning and equipping caught up, and now it was a question of sustaining that force. I wonder, because during that time frame, sir, like 2008, 2009, 10, I mean, we, the, the country was in a really big, deep, bad recession. And so I wonder if that had some, you know, um, that, that factored into, you know, increasing the, the manning, you know, more, more people joining um, because of the lack of, you know, jobs that are out there in the economy. Um, you know, I, I, I remember, uh, you know, 2008 when I came in, uh, you know, Private Bigelow, um, you know, a couple of weeks after graduating from basic training, I'm on a, I'm on a flight to, to Baghdad, Iraq, and I, I'm meeting some of the, some of the folks in my unit that have already had two deployments, um, you know, you know, at least one, maybe, maybe two. And then, and then some of the folks in there that were, you know, involved in stop loss, you know, um, going, going to that. Um, all right, sir. Uh, just, you know, transition a little bit um, to, to TAA and when decisions are actually made. Um, this is one of the questions that, uh, you know, one of my friends, a peer of mine that, you know, really wanted me to, to ask this question because we're just so fascinated because this is stuff that's like not really advertised well, in, in, in my opinion. I just want to get your thoughts on congressional notifications. Uh, when those decisions are made, what, what do they look like? Yeah, so there are, um, the more significant the decision, both in terms of the size and the capability of the Army, and then the implications of those decisions, particularly as it pertains to stationing, all generate congressional interest. And the congressional interest varies depending on where they sit. So for instance, if you're in the House or Senate Armed Service Committee, excuse me, you may, you're taking a big view and you're really interested, or if, so if you're on one of those committees, they generally have an understanding and interest in the kinds of capabilities that the Department of Defense has. And so they watch all of the services and so if you're going to do something that will significantly change the Army, uh, in our case, the Army uh, capacity or capability or capacity, they want to know that because they want to know how that's changing and they're interested in how the Department of Defense is 
integrating that change with what capabilities and capacities the other services are bringing so that they can see the collective capability that the Department of Defense brings to the fight. <clears throat> On the other hand, every congressman and every senator has a more narrow interest in how many units and therefore soldiers and civilians are stationed in their congressional district. So both of those aspects of the force generate congressional interest. What size capability, what size the army is, what its capability and capacity, where is it stationed broadly and more narrowly. <clears throat> so those are the kinds of decisions that have to go forward. And there's a requirement to notify Congress when we're making some of those decisions. There's, uh, I, would, I would submit that one of the strengths that we had in the process is that we used for stationing purposes what's called the military value analysis when, when we were getting to make decisions on stationing units, whether it was where do you station a new unit, where do you take a unit from, or if you wanted to move a unit from one place to another, the military value analysis gave an objective military-based view on what it was, and it focused on training and training land availability, the, the uh, type and amounts of ranges that were already there or could readily be expanded, um, airspace availability, um, growth potential at the post, or was it hemmed in by urban uh, growth, um, quality of life for soldiers, civilians, and families. So this military value analysis helped us go through that. It's a it's a good process to have <clears throat> because we don't want to make decisions on where we're going to station things for political reasons. Um, our job in the department was to make recommendations and to make decisions on where we're going to put the force based on the needs of the, of the military and the ability to generate ready forces. And so that military value analysis was so important. But we would have informal sessions with uh, staff members. At the, in both the Senate and the, uh, and the House um, with individual delegations. And then, of course, there was a formal process where that kind of coordination needed to occur. And then every year, the Secretary of the Army and the Chief, as part of the broader um, delivery of the budget to the President's budget, uh, every year they testified to Congress at the larger, obviously at the strategic level, uh, on the force uh, and, and any changes in force capability. And so it was ongoing. We met with them regularly, keeping them informed, whether it was a delegation from pick a state that was about to lose or gain a unit, or whether it was a member of the Senate or House Armed Services Committee that was looking more broadly. Yeah, yes, sir. Interesting. Uh, you know, at, at Arson, I like, I like to talk to, you know, Ever civilians that have been been in arson since the time that they you know, arson was in in Atlanta, and you know I'm oversimplifying this, but kind of like you know long story short, um, Shaw Air Force Base you know was on the on the chopping block part of part of BRAC and uh, <clears throat> some some congressmen um, you know to, to try to save Shaw you know did the you know re relocation of of uh, arson to uh to shaw from from atlanta so i i find the stationing i find the you know the changes you know in in installations from you know the units you know very fascinating but i feel like there's just not a lot 
out there, you know, disclosed because, you know, it's, you know, closed door conversations, very sensitive. I, I get that, but um, it's, it's an interesting topic that. Um, yeah, but let's go to that. And I, and I, and I don't know specifically what you're talking about and I can't validate that, that what you said happened the way it said it, the way you said it. But from my perspective in the department, we were looking at, again, we had completely redone uh, army commands, ASCCs, DRUs. <clears throat> and at the time, it go, goes back to the strategy. What do you want the army to do? What capabilities does it need to have? The notion was we needed to strengthen the role of our ASCCs and their relationships with their combatant commands. At the same time, the Department of Defense was looking at where we could reduce footprint that was expensive or where the quality of life wasn't as good and had this Forcecom headquarters in the middle of Atlanta and there were some huge advantages to being in Atlanta. Uh, national hub, air, air flights in and out, but we were pretty isolated there in Atlanta. And the idea was take Army, uh, take uh, Forcecom, move it to a location where there were a major concentration of troop units that it supervised. Fort Bragg, now Fort Liberty, became an obvious choice. Um, and so Force Common, OCAR, uh, the Office of the Chief of Army Reserve, USARC, went with it to Fort Liberty, and there was no intent to leave Third Army hanging in Atlanta. And because the Air Force component of Third of uh, our, our CENTCOM was at Shaw, the decision was made, move it to Shaw, we'll get some operational uh, synergy having the Army and Air Force component co-located at Shaw. Now, whether or not that synergy has taken place and taken root over the last 20 years, I can't <laughs> speak to, but that was the intent from my perspective. It wasn't about a congressman trying to save Shaw Air Force Base. Now, whether or not there was some element of that out there that I wasn't aware of, maybe, but from my perspective, it was this much more operational requirement um, that drove that decision-making. No, that's fascinating, sir. Yeah, no, I appreciate that. Um, it's a little bit more uh, better articulation than than uh, than what I've received. Um, so it's interesting, a different perspective. So uh, that's great. Awesome. Thanks, sir. Um, I want to transition a little bit to modernization and earlier modernization attempts in the Army. Um, some of the modernization efforts we've had you know, have failed. They didn't, they didn't succeed. And so what I'm talking is the, you know, the FCS, the, the Comanche, uh, the Crusader, like those are the, the big three that are pretty well known. I was wondering, sir, if you could kind of talk like, you know, why did those efforts fail? You know, like specifically to the FCS is what I'm really, really interested in. Um, if you could kind of talk, talk about that, sir. Yeah. So I wasn't directly involved as a force manager or in capability development during that time. So I won't speak with authority on that. There are probably others that can, but here's my, because I do have a pretty solid understanding of the process. And here's what I would suggest. Um, I think we decided that in the army force management model, it all starts with strategy. What do you want the army to do? <laughs> what capabilities does it need to have? How are you going to bring those capabilities into the force? So as an outsider looking in retrospectively, Again, without a lot of detailed knowledge of exactly what happened, I would submit that there were a couple of disconnects in that force management model um, as it pertained to FCS. One, 
I think there was a disconnect between the strategy, what did the Army want, what our national leadership want or thought they needed the Army to do, never really matched all of the exquisite capabilities that FCS promised to bring. And so, on the one hand, you never got full buy-in external, from the external, external stakeholders to what FCS was promising to bring and the cost that it took because it never really matched with what uh, people thought, externally thought, this is what we want the Army to do. So I think that was the first disconnect. Second disconnect was um, what capabilities we said we needed, we need to be able to bring into the force. As we bring it into the force, what processes do we use to bring it into the force? And then ultimately you have to ask, can we organize, equip, can we afford to organize, man, equip, train, sustain, station, and fund it? And that funding challenge for all of that exquisite technology that may have been more than external stakeholders thought we needed and was coming at a cost that we could not sustain was the next pitfall that brought it down. And it was never able to link through that system <clears throat> because we just didn't implement the model. What do you want the Army to do? What capabilities does it need to have? Are you building capabilities that you can then bring into the force and that you can afford to organize, man, equip, sustain, station, and fund it? And at the time, I think the answer was no. Yes, sir. Um, kind of, you know, some of my you know basic understanding of uh, the FCS was, uh, you know, reason why I think it was at SecDef Gates uh, is the one that, that made the call to, to nix it um, was because the real priority, the real, you know, what the soldiers needed was the MRAP, what they needed over in theater. Um, and the FCS was just costing way too much. And we needed, you know, needed that funding for the MRAPs, you know, to mitigate um, and defeat IEDs over, over there. Um, so that goes back to what do you need the Army to do? What capabilities does it need to have? How do you bring those capabilities into the force, right? FCS became an outlier in that process. It wasn't a capability that we needed to do what they wanted the army to do and it was too expensive and developing too slowly to meet anybody's needs anyway and so it got replaced by a capability that better met the needs of what the army wants to do and mrap's an interesting example because mrap most of the mraps and there's a series of different types of mrap vehicles um, but most mraps never really became programmer record because mm -hmm. they weren't a long-time Army solution. But they did meet a short-time need. So on the one hand, it demonstrated that if you really wanted to be able to develop a capability fast in the department and with the uh, defense industrial base, we could. But we never went through the process that was required and all of the rigor that was necessary to establish a program or record that you're going to be able to sustain for the out years because we were moving so fast. So you had all sorts of different variants. And by the time you were mm -hmm. done, you had all sorts of different variants of the same type of MRAP. And so you didn't have the supply chain and all the things that were necessary to sustain an, a, a system. Now, there were some, like the Buffalo and engineer units, where that it did become a programmer record and where that did happen. But it was a great example of how we can move fast but we made some allowances to move fast that made it more of a challenge when it came time to program a record decision-making. 
<laughs> yeah, that's an interesting story. Yeah, there's so many different variants out there by made by different companies. You know, the Max Pro, the Cayman, MATV, you, you name it. The the laundry list is is big. So, sir, uh, kind of going, you know, fast forward in time to contemporary right now. Um, what do you see going well and not so well for our current structure and, and modernization changes? Yeah, so I, I think it's interesting. You know, at the time that we went, again, when I was the director of force management, we went from a division-based force to a BCT-based army. Um, many of us who had been in had experienced, uh, uh, I mean, we had BCTs, but they were task organized within the traditional core divisional structure. But to meet the needs of the wars in Iraq and Afghanistan, the army leadership uh, felt it was important to strengthen the role of the BCT and to make it the unit of action, the standalone unit. And in order to do that, in order to enable it, the one, the thought was you didn't need the divisional base structure uh, anymore. And so things like division artilleries, division engineer brigades, uh, division signal battalions, MI battalions, um, all became <clears throat> in a uh, uh, force management term, bill payers, right? Structure bill payers to enable growth in the BCTs. But it was because of the way that we were going to fight and the way we were going to deploy units. Uh, one of the things that doesn't get told very often but General Schoomaker, who was the chief staff of the Army, who was driving the transition to modularity, knew that we were going to have to deploy BCTs on a regular recurring basis for several years, for a decade or so. Turns out more than that. And the ability of any one post to generate two or three brigades at the same time was non-existent. Even your biggest force generation locations, like then Fort Hood, now Fort Cavazos, then Fort Bragg, now Fort Liberty. They couldn't generate three brigades at a time. They could do three brigades in succession, but not at a time. And if you wanted to do three brigades at a time, you needed to do one at Fort Cavazos, you needed to do one at Fort Stewart, do one at Fort Riley, and then they could meet in Iraq or Afghanistan and fight together. And that was his notion that we could better enable the ability of the Army to generate the force with a modular structure of BCTs that brought their own capabilities. So we went from a division-based force to a brigade-based force. Go back to the strategy. What do you want the Army to do? We're fighting uh, the kinds of wars in Iraq and Afghanistan were not large-scale combat operations. I wouldn't say they weren't intense, and I wouldn't say they weren't combat-heavy. They were pretty intense and pretty combat-heavy, especially if you were in the middle of a fight down there. Uh, all you had to do was drive through Baghdad in 2004, and you'd know what a what a, what a fight with Fallujah, right? You knew what a, a battle was. But it was a different type of fight, and it wasn't large-scale ground combat operations that you needed to sustain for a long period of time. And so while in the back of our head, many of us said, man, I really hate to give up this divisional base. There's going to be a time we're going to need this. We could not sustain both. And so the strategic decision was transition to a BCT-based army, meet the demands, the demands of the war we're in, wars were in and be able to increase that BCT capacity. And now, perfect example of the force management model and how it works and why it works, now we're in a different period of time in the world order. 
and the strategy is different. And what do you want the army to do is different. And now there's a need for corps and divisional units that can fight as a unit of action and to bring the kind of enablers that we're used to corps and divisions being able to bring and let the brigade commanders focus on close combat. So now we've transitioned, right? The pendulum has shifted and we're finding ourselves having to restructure that force. What do you need to take out of what had gone down to a BCT or to the other enabling units so that you can afford to build a structure back in at the core and division level so you have a BCT that's capable of fighting close combat? It has its organic and um, uh, attached enablers. And then what enablers to the core divisions bring to support that close fight? And we're rebuilding that um, because of the way the strategy has changed. What do you want the army to do? What capabilities does it need to have? That tension, right? You know, you could ask yourself, scratch your head. Well, why did we do this to begin with? Well, there was a reason we did it 20 years ago. And now things have changed. And now it's time to reconsider um, how what the army looks like. Yeah, interesting, sir. So another question I really want to get your thoughts on is is the recruiting challenges, the the crisis. It's 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 no secret, right? You know, we've been struggling the last couple of years. You know, like twenty five k, you know, shortage. Um, what are what are your thoughts? Um, what do you, what do you think are the impacts to structure and and the declining end strength because we're just not getting the the, the people in that we need. Okay, so I know there are a lot of smart people out there who have done a lot more intellectual study and research on this than I have, but just from an old force manager's view, right? One of the great challenges of the TAA process is you're building that program force within an end strength that Congress is willing to fund, right? So Congress gives the army an end strength in the National Defense Authorization Act, and then we build a force within that over a POM period. There's always challenges fitting into that force. And I told you we were growing the Army when I was the director of force management. We were, our intent was to get up to around 560, 565 in the regular Army, 355 in the Army National Guard, and I think it was 205 uh, in the Army Reserve. And there were some challenges to being able to meet those end strength figures even then, but it was necessary to do. In order to get that, you obviously got to have a manning base that will sustain that force. Um, you made the comment uh, earlier about unemployment and all that. For all of the studies we're doing, this is for Micah's uninformed opinion, much of the recruiting challenges we face are a direct result of the economy that has a low unemployment rate. I would submit if the unemployment rate was higher and young men and women of employment age couldn't find work in the civilian sector, the private sector, they would be more likely to look at the services as another alternative. I'm convinced that that's a big part of it. 
there may be other challenges that people are identifying that might, you know, people don't want to make that decision to change. I'm convinced that's a good part of it, but it's real. And it's something that the army and the other services have to deal with. Uh, and I appreciate and applaud all the efforts that they're taking to um, help solve the recruiting challenge. And I'm particularly pleased with a program that gives our young men and women the opportunity to advance uh, both their academic and their physical skills and attributes so that they can meet the basic requirements to come into the Army. Um, <clears throat> we can wring our hands about saying that, you know, <clears throat> there's not enough people not at the uh, enlistment age that are even uh, meet the requirements to join the service. We can wring our hands about that all day long. That doesn't solve our problem. The question is, what are the actions we can take to help solve that national problem? It's not a military problem to solve. It's a, you know, the fitness of our youth is a national problem to solve. <clears throat> but what role can we play? And opening ourselves up to bring uh, young men and women in and give them the opportunity to grow academically or physically so that they can meet the requirement, not only is good for short-term recruiting needs of the force, but it's better for the long-term uh, <clears throat> health of our of America, right? We've always said, come in and join the army and then we'll put you back out in the civilian world, whether you leave in four years or 40 years, you'll be trained in a skill, you'll be disciplined, you'll have um, learned how to uh, follow and to lead. I mean, there's so many benefits to join in the military. This is another one, right? You're gonna be physically fit. You're gonna be a better citizen when you return to, the, uh, to, to civilian life. And I think bringing people in, giving them that opportunity to meet the requirements so that they can serve is a good step that the Army has taken to help re, uh, reduce uh, their recruiting challenge. Yes, sir. Yeah, I, I'm in the same camp as, as yourself. I, I, I think we have a really, really strong economy. And, and un unfortunately, I think it's going to take like a recession to kind of turn turn things turn things around because there's far more opportunities out there. Um, that people are looking at than 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 the military. Um, I, I know we're you know we're we're running short on time, sir. And there's some questions I really want to get after, sir, before uh, before we end it. Um, one of the questions and try to try to go back a little bit um, that I want your thoughts on is is the peace dividend. You know, going back to you know the Clinton administration. You know, it's a unipolar world. You know, the end of history. You know. Um, Clinton commences like a drawdown of of troops. You know, just wondering. You know, if you could. Talk us through, sir, like your thoughts on the impact to the army with those decisions and, and drawing down the force um, and then, you know, the, the BRAC closing down some of the some of the installations. Yeah. So, again, historical perspective. Right. Um, I keep bringing it back to. What's a strategy? What what is the strategy for the nation that starts with the national security strategy, the national defense strategy, national military strategy, all these work their way down to what do you want the army to do? What capability does it need to have? And that's how, how big is it? So as we were transitioning back in the nineties, the notion was that we just didn't need a big army anymore. And, you know, we had over uh, 700,000 
people in the army, 190, whatever it was uh, in the army. When I first came in, we were stationed uh, in Germany. Um, but we had more field artillery units training at Grafenwehr at any one training rotation in 1977 when I was a young lieutenant than we had cannon units in the regular army when I left as the DFM. So um, at least uh, external to the, to the BCTs. But um, so we were going to get smaller because the national strategy said we didn't need that large army. In the short term, there were some advantages to the army. I was a battalion commander in 1994. And we had the, what I used to tell people is we're going to go down to a 492,000 soldier regular army. We, the leadership of the army at the time, we got to pick who was going to stay. So if you had a two or three time offender, for instance, or a soldier that just wasn't motivated or wasn't cutting it, we didn't have a lot of patience with having to keep them in the army. Mm -hmm. We kept in the army those who wanted to stay and who we wanted to keep. We were able to um, make much tougher decisions. I think actually it was easier because you could make a decision on who you were going to keep. So there were some short-term benefits in fashioning a smaller force that had higher standards and was more capable. Now we're in a different dilemma, right? And the question has to remain, can you afford to maintain that same standard as you're trying to grow the force and meet the recruiting challenges that we have? I, a lot of the problems that we have in the military today, in my view, are a result that the Army is fundamentally too small for all of the demands that we ask it to do. And the second and third order effects are things that we see coming out in whether it's uh, behaviors um, or uh, recruitment, recruiting and retention, first tempo challenges, um, equipping challenges, supply discipline challenges. Um, all of those have some root in the fact that the Army's too small and being asked to do more than it's capable of doing. I think. Uh, and so you've got to put basic discipline in those processes to mitigate that as best we can. But the fact of the matter is that the, for all of the things that we want the Army to do today and what we envision the Army to do tomorrow, it's too small. So you have this, again, another tension. You're the director of force management, right? You're the Army leadership. You know you need to grow the Army again because there are real capabilities. You need a basic uh, inventory of BCTs and divisions and cores and division enablers to do the fights that you need to have. And then you have emerging needs, whether it's EW or space or cyber um, and any of those other enablers. We've got to grow those capabilities in our army while maintaining the fighting forces that we need. So we've got to grow at the same time we're having a recruiting challenge. So you, and you don't want to have more structure than you can afford to man. So you've got to balance that. And it really makes for hard decisions as to what kind of capabilities we're going to keep so that we can man the most critical capabilities that we need now for the next five to 10 years. 
Yeah, yes, sir. Yeah, as a as a GFM guy, uh, I, I I see the 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 burnout rate um, and, and some of those some of those implications uh, that you described, um, and I'm really scared, really nervous for some of our some of our capabilities just because of the high demand and low inventory that we have. Um, I know we're you know running out of time, sir. You know, just one more question before I get into the to the fun questions that I always ask all, all my guests that you know, I really want your thoughts on. So, our struck twenty five twenty nine. We we should be heavily involved in twenty seven thirty one. You know, twenty eight thirty two with you know FDUs and whatnot. But twenty five twenty nine still has not been released. Um, just your your thoughts on why, sir? So, anytime the Army senior leadership has to make it, and I'll give you a short answer, but anytime the Army senior leadership has to make a decision, right, you've got to balance um, the input and the responses from a wide variety of internal and external stakeholders, right? When you're, when you're making decisions at the enterprise level for an Army of 1 million soldiers and civilians, there's a lot of stakeholders, and you've got to balance the competing needs of all those stakeholders, ultimately making decisions that are best for the readiness of the Army. Can we deliver the capability and capacity that we need to, to meet the strategy? That's ultimately what needs to drive it, but there are a lot of stakeholders. And I don't know what's in our struct, the 25, what you said, 2531, 2529. Yeah. I don't know what's specifically in that, but I do know that the decisions need to be made um, and uh, to to affect that. And they probably have both internal and external stakeholders that need to be coordinated with, need to understand the nat- nature of those decisions and have to be coordinated. I know that the senior leadership's been over at the Hill talking to Congress about some of the upcoming decisions they need to make. And so there's this effort that has to go on before you can make it. And one of the things I like, I tell the uh, attendees at the action officer course when I talk to it is when you're getting ready to make decisions at the senior level, like this, the enterprise level, the timing of the decision is as important as the decision itself. And if you make what's otherwise a very good decision and you make it too early before the conditions are set for that decision to be made, even the best decision may fall flat on its face. And so I believe the Army leadership is going through that process of setting the conditions internally and externally so that whatever decisions they're about to announce, that it's ready, the conditions are set for that decision to be made and for those decisions to be accepted so that the Army can then move on. Yeah, that's some really good points there, sir. Yeah, that's awesome. Um, okay, sir, you know, while we have some time, I want to transition to the to my fun questions. And these are the questions that I ask every guest, you know, regardless of the of the topic. And so to <laughs> add add more to everyone's reading list, you know, what is uh you know, what is your all time favorite book? You know, what's a recommendation of you know a certain book that we should be reading? So I get asked that a lot, and I've read lots of books. Um and um I actually prefer American history and American military history more than anything. So I'm a nonfiction kind of guy. But having said that, the answer that I'm going to give you is actually a historical fiction book. And there's a story that goes with it. When I was a young lieutenant in 1977, there was a mini series on Armed Forces Network in Germany 
uh, called Once an Eagle. Mm-hmm. And Once an Eagle was about two protagonists, Sam, uh, protagonists, Sam Damon, who was the stereotypical hard-charging troop kind of soldier leader, and then Courtney Massengale, who was a much less so troop leader, much more in for himself, always seeking the high, uh, high-level jobs, um, not really the tough unit leader jobs, um, jobs that gave him good visibility, but not necessarily the hard work. So there were two different guys, and uh, Sam. And, and the book talks about how the two of them rose through the ranks and got to promoted to general officer. And so there were, in my mind, two types of officers we young lieutenants could aspire to be. Did you want to be Sam Damon or do you want to be Courtney Massengale? And I chose to, to try to aspire to the to Sam Damon in many ways. Um, when I was a battalion commander, I wanted all the lieutenants to read that book, and I found out that or see the movie, and I found out there wasn't a movie, and you could, it wasn't a book. So I was hard pressed to find it. The the only books you could get were in old bookstores. But fortunately, a few years later, uh, the uh, Army War College Press, I think it is, but the Army War College published uh, Once an Eagle, and it and it's out, and it's available again. So it's a historical fiction. It's based on World War Two. Um, but it was a shaping kind of book for me, and I would recommend any young officer, non-commissioned officer, soldier in our army to read it and to be able to make a decision as to what kind of soldier did they want to be. Once an eagle. Yes, sir. Yeah, it's a phenomenal book and definitely should be a must-read for all of our young lieutenants. Um, all right, sir. What emerging or future capability technology worries you the most? Yeah, so I. I'm not a technology guy by definition, so I shy away from, I'm one of those guys that really appreciates it and loves the technology when we have it and when we know how to use it. But if it ain't user friendly, then it makes me nervous. So whatever technology we develop and we choose to employ in our army has to not only be the kind of technology that can help advance our ability to develop capability and capacity in our army, uh, to simplify processes and to make re- quick, timely decisions so that a commander can fight and save his soldiers, ma- uh, uh, masses resources, and make timely decisions. That's the kind of technology we want, but it's got to be user-friendly. So any technology that isn't user-friendly, no matter how good it is, I worry about because ultimately it puts us at risk in being able to employ it. That was one way to answer the question. The other is there's a lot of talk out there about AI and chat GPT. Mm-hmm. Um, I, I didn't like it when some Nigerian gang was able to use my likeness on Facebook and ask people for money using my likeness. Um, it was impossible to get Facebook to try to stop it. Um, and so it just kept going. So. I, I don't use Facebook as a result of that. Um, but there's all sorts of technologies that are out there that can put people uh, really in harm's way, that can either represent their likeness or somehow put words in their mouth or put picture. I worry about those kinds of technologies and our ability to control them um, so that when you hear somebody or see somebody, the American public can have confidence that you're actually hearing and seeing 
that person. Awesome. Yeah. Thanks, sir. Uh, final question. Any, any advice, any words of wisdom for our, our force managers or our, our junior FA fifties? Yeah. So FA fifties have an important role in our army and that they help build the force that we need to build uh, force managers and FA fifties have an opportunity to serve down in our units and up at the headquarters. And like any other, like any other branch or functional area, you've got to balance your time. You want to have experience down at the operational level. You want to bring the capabilities that those units need and be that central point of contact so the unit knows how to tap into the larger processes and and influence and shape the kind of capability and capacity that that you need. Same time, um, and we may want to shy away from the big headquarters, right? But you have to work at headquarters VA. You have to work at the readiness center. You have to work at OCAR. You have to work in our Army commands and our ASCCs so you can see this big Army and this enterprise and understand how it needs to work so that when you're down in a core division, um, you, you see and understand that big picture. So balance your time, become expert in the processes of force management, and understand how you can best link the unit that you're in at whatever level you are with the processes and resources that make that force management model work so you can generate the kind of change or stability that your unit needs. Awesome, sir. I, I really appreciate this, this discussion, this conversation, uh, using the FM model. Um, you know, it starts with a strategy, you know, to articulate some of your, your answers. Um, before we, uh, we, we close out, sir, any, any closing comments on your answer? Now, I would just say um, I appreciate I've been surrounded by terrific force managers throughout my career, some real heroes that made a huge difference when I was a director of force management. Many of them still involved in force management today, whether it was then Colonel, now Mrs. Robin Mueller, Colonel Ben Rivera, um, Mr. Dan Egbert, um, so many others. I could name a, a, a bunch, but there are so many force managers that really helped teach and train me and shape my ability to serve as a director of force management and since and i just want to thank not only them but all of our army force managers for the work that you do uh, as you find your role whether you're in the strategy what do you want the army to do you're in capability uh, force development right what capabilities does the army need to have how are we going to bring those capabilities into the force or whether you're in the resourcing can we afford to organize man equip train sustain station and fund it are you in the force generation side as we develop the or de- deploy those forces to meet combatant commanders' requirements? Force managers operate throughout that spectrum, and I close with saying thank you to uh, to all of the force managers for what you do, so that you can help us generate the kind of army that we need to in order to execute the strategy that our national leadership wants us to be able to execute. Awesome. All right, sir. Well, thank you very much. We'll uh, we'll close things up. Well, thanks. Appreciate it. And uh, thank you for uh, leading this effort and running this podcast and informing the force. Uh, Thanks, sir. All right. Thanks for listening. Stay tuned for future episodes involving discussions with senior force managers and subject matter experts on strategic readiness, the defense industrial base, and the all-volunteer force.